The moving puck that we're aiming for is a post-inflection space uh, ecosystem where we are seeing thousands of transits, in-space transits of vehicles, a huge propellant supply chain, new propulsion systems and capabilities, new infrastructure and habitats and working facilities in space, on the lunar surface and beyond. This is not a case of science fiction or fantasy. This is an emerging future that is inevitable in its path. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome to part two of The Downlink's coverage of the State of the Space Industrial Base conference and workshop organized by New Space New Mexico. You just heard from this episode's guest, Jim Caravalla. He's the CEO, chief architect, and chairman of the board for the California-based company Offworld. Offworld is a maker of industrial, artificially intelligent robots. The future Jim envisions for these robots is mining and manufacturing on orbit, on asteroids, and on the moon. In fact, the robots are already hard at work here on Earth extracting platinum. But here's Jim's concern. He argues that for humans to build the commercial off-world ecosystem, that spacefaring commerce, much like seafaring trade, needs to be free of molestation by nations that do not share democratic ideals. And there's a tradition for this, dating back to the Barbary Wars at the beginning of the 19th century. A very young United States Navy joined Sweden and the Kingdom of Sicily in protecting commerce off the North African coast. Keeping sea lanes accessible and free for commerce has been a Navy mission for what's now more than two centuries. But before we get to Jim's interview, I encourage you to listen to part one if you haven't already. It sets the stage for whether the moon and cislunar space is a strategically important piece of our near-Earth geography, say as the Chinese do. And after the interview, stick around for a super quick but special interview with Danny Hawkes, a retired junior high school teacher who has a novel way of supporting the next generation of astronauts. And now my conversation with Jim Caravalla of Off World. Hi, Jim. I'm so glad to have been able to make it to the New Space New Mexico Conference specifically to meet entrepreneurs like yourself. Hi. Hi, Laura. Great to meet you, too. Thank you. Jim, please take more than a moment to introduce yourself and your company, Off World. Well, uh, I'm Jim Caravalla, CEO and co-founder of Off World. Um, Offworld is uh, tackling uh, humanity's greatest challenges uh, of uh, expanding beyond Earth's ecosystem into the solar system, into the stars beyond. But we're not just dreaming about that opportunity. We are actually implementing firm, tangible and achievable steps uh, to, to reach that. Um, <clears throat> we've uh, treated Earth just as another celestial body. Um, where we begin, uh, began operations uh, with the mining and construction sectors uh, and developing our space program here terrestrially. We're building machine-intelligent robots um, architected around a modular platform that operate in multiple species undertaking different tasks. Um, and our first deployments are in underground mines uh, around the world. 
And we're very excited at the progress that we're making. And as the uh, neural nets and reinforcement learning of these systems improve, uh, we'll deploy these robots and these uh, uh, other other uh, systems around the platforms into space, to the moon, uh, to the asteroids as we build civilization outwards. Your company is already producing product. Where and what ores are we talking about? And as current Terran production is really just the first step in your master plan, also tell us what is Offworld's master plan? And what's the schedule for getting operations off this world? So we're currently deploying in uh, platinum mines, um, and we're uh, completely able to work with our partners to also operate in nickel, copper, lithium, rare earth metals, and uh, any other number of ore bodies, specifically where there are, you know, there's low grade, they're tier two or three, um, there are spent mines that can't be uh, economically mined through conventional uh, mining, and also where mines are just getting deeper. Um, there are no more open pit mines to really be discovered. Um, this is the time where you don't want people uh, in these dangerous underground mines. It's the time for robots to do the tough jobs. So that's uh, why we're really coming into the time uh, that we're in. They're all electric systems. Um, we don't use hydrocarbons. We don't use drill and blast. It's a, it's a revolution in ESG-compliant mining um, that can really make a huge impact for the environment. And so taking all that capability and that ethos and the principles of caring for the world around us as we use these uh, machines um, to do these dangerous tasks, that enables us to build this uh, architecture that expands outwards beyond Earth uh, to the moon, to the uh, near-Earth space around us, where we can start redeploying our terrestrial capabilities in mining, construction, infrastructure repair with these robots and undertake the same tasks and add manufacturing and assembly so you have an end-to-end -end platform in space that can operate as a solar system toolkit where we have access to propellant uh, from our robots excavating water ice on the moon through to transport, through to habitation modules, and create a platform for an ecosystem of community to integrate onto that uh, so that we can have end-to-end uh, -end interoperability in space, rapid access to anywhere we want, access to all the delta V or propulsion that we need, and really create that uh, environment where we're enjoying the type of transport exploitation that we have in, in urban cities. In a plenary session, you identified what you called an existential risk to space commerce, I mean, very specifically beyond geostationary orbit. In fact, you said there was, in effect, a posturing of civilizations and that we, you know, the greater we, need to get focused on activities beyond geostationary orbit. Can you explain what it is that you're seeing? Yes. So... So we have a number of layers of challenges as a global civilization and community. The, the, the first is that we have a lot of terrestrial tensions uh, geopolitically. Those tensions have a tendency to manifest in, um, in ways that are, of course, undesirable. The in-space evolution of activity over the next decade is taking some of these potential tensions into account the challenge is, is that any kinetic or adversarial activity in space has far-reaching implications. Uh, debris 
potential debris consequences of um, inter-satellite kinetic collisions, any other activities, cause a disruption where to a far wider field of uh, environmental spread than we experience terrestrially. In space, we don't have ubiquitous gravity field. We don't have um, damping atmospheres. So anything that happens tends to just carry on in the same direction. So this is the first challenge that we have, is that we cannot get into conflict-based situations in space. We have to avoid that at all costs. Uh, the, the second uh, large challenges that we have is that, as a species, we have always tended to um, aggregate our efforts around the accumulation of resources, um, shelter, optimum geographical positioning. And we're still humans, 1.0 generally, uh, and motivations that we have here terrestrially we will take with us. So we also have to create the capability and strategy and doctrine for benign enforcement on behalf of all peoples uh, as a community to maintain the free passage and free utility of space. And that's, that's the challenges I think we, you know, some of the challenges we face intrinsic to our nature. However, we have um, orders of magnitude greater challenges that we need to address right now as well. And those are particularly around the availability of resources and the density of energy terrestrially to create the programs that we need to build in space at the scale we need to ensure that the environment that we have on Earth is both maintained and recovered. The challenge that we have with a, a, a lot of the climate solutions, uh, climate recovery solutions that we're facing terrestrially is that they're Many of them are Earth-based solutions. So we would have to undertake the engineering, the development, the uh, resource utilization on Earth, uh, manufacturing. We would basically have to push the global economy into a higher gear terrestrially, which will cause more of the environmental challenges and problems that we are facing now in order to solve the problems we're trying to, to mitigate. And so if we maintain our energy creation solutions only on Earth, we will make the problem worse by trying to solve our environmental challenges. So the, the window of opportunity that we have and the existential threats that we face is one of climate, of the economic availability of oil and hydrocarbons, um, our ability to avoid cascading critical consequences of, say, single conflicts that were previously local and regional that now have global um, effect, ripple effects because we're so interconnected. Space weather, the global environment are critical tipping point um, challenges that we, uh, we need to face. The existential solution that as a civilization we have to step up to and, and build is that we need off-earth manufacturing. We need off-world manufacturing systems that can create the majority of uh, simple structural and other components that we need. We need to build them in, on the moon, in free space, get those uh, capabilities up and running within the, within the next years and a uh, few decades at scale and start to build the power generation systems we need, again, outside of Earth's uh, envelope. You see, Earth is sitting in the one habitable zone that we know. It is the one perfect place that exists in the universe that we know for humanity. We need to preserve and manage that environment as if it was the most fragile meadow. All our 
engineering works, our power generation, our chemical facilities. We, we need to take off the planet as quickly as we can. And we need to undertake that preparation now because the subsequent generations that come after us, um, if, we don't, if we don't seed that capability now, we may be the last generation or two that has access to unfettered hydrocar- the hydro- uh, unfettered hydrocarbon economy. We need to use that bounty now for the right reasons and the right purposes, which is to build our capability to free ourselves of hydrocarbons. And I don't think we can solve the challenges of the system by only using the tools within the system. We have to go beyond Earth and build massively now. So in order to build that industrialization capability uh, off-world, we need to ensure that we have free passage, that we are all aligned, that the trivial adversarial pressures that we uh, often face as a civilization and a species are secondary to the greater goal that binds us all together uh, and the challenges that we face uh, as one species on this planet. Let me bring this back to business for a second. You know, there are folks that are going to say, well, you know, it's a risk, sure, that the Chinese are throwing money at building space infrastructure, but it's really an unproven business case. I mean, the economic case, you know, where is the promise of monetization? Well, <clears throat> off-world is already um, generating revenue. In fact, we built our entire company without investment for many years. So there are there are huge market opportunities just awaiting. And I think as the onset of reusable heavy launch becomes a reality, this changes the dynamics and economics of the entire argument. We look at urban civilization and uh, nation states uh, around the world. We look at all the infrastructure that we built in cities and, uh, and in communities beyond. There is nothing different to what we'll do in space. It just is a case of can we have the transport cost and the energy cost to be in parity with the opportunities that exist. And so when we talk about infrastructure in space, we should think less of it in the paradigms of the last 70 years of our in-space activity because that's not the the moving puck that we're aiming for. The moving puck that we're aiming for is a post-inflection space uh, ecosystem where we are seeing thousands of transits, in-space transits of vehicles, a huge propellant supply chain, new propulsion systems and capabilities, new infrastructure and habitats and working facilities in space, on the lunar surface and beyond. This is not a case of science fiction or fantasy. This is an emerging future that is inevitable in its path, assuming we can get over the existential challenges that we face. So the way America needs to respond to this is we need to align with the purpose that we have, the purpose that America, in particular, and the West, has driven the ideals of humanity, is for freedom, for liberty, for freedom of movement, freedom of expression and uh, uh, opportunity. We need to establish that those principles in space, ensure those values uh, are adhered to and enforceable so that we can really start building these systems uh, as, as we move forward. So the cost of doing this may be a few billions of dollars or a few billions of dollars, but 
I am absolutely convinced that they are all market-facing. They are all customer-facing. The customers uh, do exist now. I can tell you the customers exist in their millions to billions of people. It is a case of building enough infrastructure to join the dots so that we can connect to the end users and, prov and ensure those service provisions. And if anyone has any doubt, we've already done this with the geostationary direct broadcast and communications facilities uh, that we have, with the low Earth orbit uh, capabilities that we have. We've already proven the principle of in-space assets reaching billions of people and serving huge market opportunities. The same dynamics exist. It's just a case of having enough of that infrastructure so you can join the dots to create the vendors to the end users. It just so happens that beyond geostationary and uh, low Earth orbits uh, facing outwards, we just need to ensure that we're identifying the customers clearly and that we provide enough lead time so that the, the vendor community can join the dots in terms of provision and capability to ensure that we can activate those markets and customer relationships. It's inevitable that it's going to happen. It is inevitable. The period of time that it's going to happen is as long as the lead time it takes to execute the engineering, the market, uh, and the business models. So the, the, the implication is the time to start thinking big and executing is now, because if it's not us, it's going to be someone. Earlier in the conference, a U.S. Air Force official in the plenary session said that the DOD was here to listen to your concerns and to hear out your solutions. What is your number one concern, and what do you think the solution is? I think from a DOD perspective, my number one concern is that the common uh, goal of protecting the warfighter relies on a set of assets in space that are essential to that support. Those assets are not in the high ground, and they are as vulnerable as uh, an, an uncovered warfighter. So we need to establish the systems and capabilities, uh, the modular fractionated architecture, the propellant availability and supply, and the in-space transportation systems that can protect those LEO assets, and then the geostationary assets, and then the cislunar assets that will be an extension of potential contested space. We need to ensure that capability is in place. It needs to be a system-wide capability. It needs to be comprehensive. It can't be one piece of the puzzle. We need the whole puzzle in place to ensure that we can do what we need to do. Because protection of our space assets that ensure, let's say, the, the Western way of life maintains a parity with, with uh, an even leadership um, on Earth is absolutely essential. Because if we cannot deploy our forces for the enforcement of benign and open trade and commerce and stability... Adversarial regimes who tend to operate on autocratic or authoritarian principles will continue to pursue an expansion of their domain and will continue to threaten the growth and sustenance of democracies and open governance societies. And as we move out into the solar system and to the stars, the principles of agency, of sentience, of intelligence are absolutely fundamental to the freedom of thought and the freedom and liberty of actions to be taken. Any regime or any um, governance system 
that curtails individual freedoms to such an extent that they are only a function of the maintenance of that regime's hold on power is an anathema to the human condition. Democracies aren't perfect. The, the Western world has a lot of continued growth and learning to do, as, as we all do, uh, whichever, whichever community and nation we're in. But it is, it is the best uh, reflection of benign human nature that balances our needs for growth and our needs for resource acquisition with the, the social uh, thread of connecting together and identifying what binds us as a global people, what brings us all together, and those challenges that we face as one people on this planet are orders of magnitude greater than the concerns and conflicts and pressures that we have that divide us. And we need to uh, ensure that we have the tools to maintain that thread of common goal acquisition as we go out into the, the solar system. So the maintenance and insurance of a cislunar space and building the systems now has far-reaching fundamental uh, implications for our civilization and the species that we become as we move further and further away from Earth, eventually into generations where some may never see our home planet uh, as they reach other stars. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Laura. It's been, it's been fun. Now, you're probably in need of some lighter fare. And for that, I have a quick and fun interview with Danny Hawkes and how he's using salsa to send kids to space camp. Hi, Danny. Welcome to the podcast. Usually the discussion on the podcast can be well serious, great power competition, pacing threat stuff. But today we're going to take a short departure from national security issues to securing serious Southwest flavor on orbit. Danny, please tell me about yourself. Tell me about your business. Um, and when did you launch? Laura, thank you for this opportunity. It's uh, wonderful to uh, be on your podcast. My name is Danny Hawkes. I spent 36 years as a classroom teacher and instructional resource specialist in southern Colorado and northwestern New Mexico. I recently retired uh, from uh, education to launch a salsa business, and it's a special salsa. It's a dehydrated salsa. Well, going back uh, 30 years, I taught junior high school. And one of the things I really wanted kids to do was go to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. So 30 years ago, I started taking the kids to space camp. And in fact, this next week, we're taking more kids to space camp. To date, we've taken 542 kids there. Wonderful. It's a wonderful program. Uh, I, I, just, I just can't praise the virtues of space camp. Well, a few years ago, uh, you know, let's say back to 2010, Space Camp honored me by inducting me into Space Camp Hall of Fame. So a few years ago, uh, I would always take uh, my fresh salsa uh, to the new inductees, and we'd sit around the pool and have my fresh salsa. But I came up with an idea. I said, what if I could come up with an idea or a product that we can sell and help raise money for the Space Camp Hall of Fame Scholarship Fund? Well, in 2018, I went home back to Colorado, and I thought and did some research and a little bit of R&D being the scientist that I am. And over the course of nine months, I created the world's first dehydrated salsa that you just add hot water, mix, and 20 minutes later, you have delicious and nutritious salsa. 
we decided to call it Danny's Rocket Ranch Space Salsa. And along with my forever bride, Laura, uh, I'm the CEO and the janitor. And Laura is the brain. She does all the IT work and she keeps the website updated. And she lets me think I'm the boss. So, <laughs> but, she's, but she's wonderful. So we sell it online and uh, part of the profits go to help kids go to space camp. So uh, I'm down here at, uh, in Albuquerque. And just spreading the love of space salsa, trying to network and make people uh, aware about space salsa. Now, right now, we have 39 stores in three states, Colorado, New Mexico, and Alaska, that sell our salsa. And we hope to be uh, ubiquitous, selling it in thousands of stores across America, because the more salsa we can sell, the more kids we can send to space camp. And uh, we should have salsa in every household in America because it's delicious, nutritious, and it's out of this world. Has your salsa actually been consumed on orbit yet? Not yet, but we're working on that right now. I talked to, uh, uh, I talked to Nanorex this uh, morning, and we're going to think of a way and find a maybe experimental way, work with kids with space camp or uh, local schools, but we're going to see if we can't get it up in, on orbit and maybe consumed by some astronauts. But it is astronaut approved because I have several astronaut friends who have tried it and they think it's out of this world. Just for my listeners, um, you should know that NanoRacks is already a highly successful space company and that it's working to build its own continuously manned commercial space station called Space Lab. And again, if one of our listeners wants to get their very own space salsa, how can they do it? Well, they go on the internet www.dannysrocketranch.com and you can read about uh, Laura and I, our, our mission for taking kids to space camp and order your own delicious space salsa. We have three varieties. We have Martian Mild, Martian Spicy Original, which is a medium hot, and Martian Hot. So we're, it's going to be uh, on to Mars. Hopefully it'll be served on Mars in a few years. It might be easier to eat on Mars than it is on orbit. Uh, could be. Danny, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Thank you, Laura. It's my pleasure, and thank you very much for the opportunity. If you want to support Danny's work, look up Danny's Rocket Ranch. Personally, I prefer the Martian hot salsa. I hope you've enjoyed this special part two episode. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe and share with your friends. The downlink is available on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.